0: In 1903, W.E.B. Du Bois famously wrote, The problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. He borrowed that phrase, the color line, from Frederick Douglass, dating back even further to 1881. Looking at the past hundred years of American history, with all of its progress and innovation, its growth and development, we see that Du Bois was right, America's dysfunctional relationship with race has always been central at every step and in every way. In Season 2, we've explored how structural racism and discrimination have held back communities in America from the opportunity to thrive. We've heard from experts in racial justice, public health, education, criminal justice, diversity, community development, and philanthropy. In this bonus episode, we dig deeper into the history of racial housing segregation and the myth of de facto segregation. It's been a convenient diversion from the truth that's been told since Reconstruction that the segregation we've seen and continue to see in America is just the effects of private, individual biases and incidents of discrimination, rather than codified in law. But when we look at the facts, that myth breaks down pretty quickly, with the abundant examples of policies in local, state, and federal governments across the country that explicitly discriminated against African Americans. In the area of housing, we see a stark example of racism and discrimination as the law of the land in America. Starting back with the New Deal and continuing in different forms today, there have been laws about where someone could and could not live, and incentives and subsidies to find quality and affordable housing only available to some. And we see the scars of those discriminatory policies today in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. They didn't just appear one day, they were engineered into existence. But we believe that they can be engineered into healthy places too. That we can begin to heal those scars and start to peel back structural racism and discrimination in America. Welcome to This is Community, a podcast series by Purpose Built Communities about breaking the cycle of poverty and creating vibrant communities where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. I'm Alexandra Wiggins, Senior Community Development Advisor with Purpose Built Communities. In this bonus episode to season two, we hear a conversation between two longtime leaders in their fields, Shirley Franklin and Richard Rothstein. They talked about the history and myth of de facto segregation in America and what it will take to reverse the toxic effects of that history. Shirley Franklin is the Executive Chair of the Board of Directors of Purpose-Built Communities and former Barbara Jordan Visiting Professor in Ethics and Political Values at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin. She was elected the first African-American woman mayor of a major Southern city in 2001 and served two terms as mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, until 2009. Richard Rothstein is a distinguished fellow of the Economic Policy Institute and a senior fellow emeritus at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and of the Haas Institute at the University of California, Berkeley. He is the author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, which recovers how federal, state, and local policy explicitly segregated metropolitan areas nationwide, creating racially homogeneous neighborhoods and patterns that violate the Constitution and require remediation. Here now are Shirley Franklin and Richard Rothstein.
1: Hello? Hello, Richard. This is Shirley Franklin. How are you? Oh. How are you? I'm doing fine. I don't know if you recall, I had a chance to uh, hear you present a paper. Um, I think it was at one of Atlantic Magazine's fora up in D.C. Oh, really? Yes, I was on the panel right after your presentation. And I was, mm. I was...
2: Oh, uh, I remember.
1: And I was just so taken. I, I At the time, I don't think you, well, you may have been writing the book, but you certainly had a lot of research. And I brought your paper back to my office in Atlanta uh, and shared it with some of my colleagues. And of course, it was an academic paper. So some of them said, it's too long. It's not glossy paper. Who is this guy, right? Okay. And, and I, for about a few months, I said, no, 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 you must read it because I'd had a chance to, ha- to hear you present it, and that audience was just spellbound by your research. So I am thrilled that I have a chance now, after reading your book and hearing other people talk about it and hearing you talk about it, uh, have a, a, a kind of a short conversation about um, how did you come to do this work? Your background is in education research. You've been a columnist, thought leader around education, and frankly, education and the social justice um, um, overall focus. And how did you become interested in racial housing segregation? What prompted your interest? Was it an event? Uh, Was it an aha moment alone in your study? I mean, how did you come to this?
2: Well, it was a combination of a lot of things. Uh, I was an education writer, and much of the writing I was doing in the 1990s and early 2000s was about what I regarded as the absurdity of uh, national education policy and state education policy as well which assumed that the uh, only reason why we had an achievement gap between black and white children was because teachers had low expectations of black children and weren't trying hard enough. And we adopted a national policy that uh, required children to be tested incessantly and schools and teachers held accountable for those test scores without doing anything about the social and economic conditions that from which children came to school, which predicted their average levels of achievement. And I remember writing one column, for example, about asthma, in which I uh, showed that the black children in low-income neighborhoods, uh, segregated neighborhoods, have asthma at four times the rate of middle-class children. And if they have asthma, they are likely to be up at night wheezing, uh, perhaps drowsy and sleepless when they come to school the next day. And no matter how high teacher expectations are, no matter how often children are tested, you can't make them wide awake if they haven't gotten any sleep. And if you add up all of these conditions that uh, predict lower achievement, whether it's asthma or lead poisoning, which affects cognitive ability or homelessness or economic insecurity or stress, you've explained the achievement gap. And so I was writing about this and, and then all of a sudden, I guess it was gradual, I began to uh, think about uh, the fact that um, when you have children with these kinds of conditions and uh, you concentrate them in single schools, it is impossible to expect those schools, no matter how high quality the instruction, how well trained the teachers, how high their expectations are, to have the same achievement as children who come to school well-rested and not poisoned by lead and uh, not under stress and not homeless and not economically insecure. And so I began to think that the biggest problem facing our education system today was segregated schools. And then um, I began to consider that I should figure out why those schools are so segregated. And this may be obvious to most people, but I'm a slow learner. It gradually dawned on me that the reason the schools are so segregated because the neighborhoods they're located in are segregated. And so I began to wonder how they came to be so segregated. And that's one explanation of uh, how I came to this book. And I guess um, an illustration of how gradual this was is I wrote a book in 2014 called Class and Schools which documented the pathways by which, of these, uh, by which each of these social and economic disadvantages predicted lower achievement in children, uh, particularly African-American children. But I paid almost no attention to the segregation of the schools. I mentioned it a couple of times, but that wasn't the main focus. I was thinking of these as individual disadvantages. Um, so that's one way I came to it. And then you ask about an aha moment. I uh, read a Supreme Court decision in 2007 with which you're probably familiar. It was called Parents Involved, Uh, and uh, that decision, the Supreme Court prohibited the school districts of Louisville and Seattle from embarking on a desegregation plan that was very, very token. They permitted uh, children to and parents to choose the schools within the district that they would go to. But if the choice was going to exacerbate the segregation of the school, the racial homogeneity of the school, that choice wouldn't be honored in the favor of a choice of a child who would not do that. This was a trivial program. I mean, if you had one place left in a school in a, uh, there was an all-white school, and uh, or almost all-white, and a black and a white child both applied to it. The black child would be given some preference. It was trivial. I mean, you don't have one place left very often where you have to make that kind of choice. But the Supreme Court prohibited prohibited it, and uh, Chief Justice John Roberts explained that uh, the reason that the schools in Louisville and Seattle were segregated was because the neighborhoods in which they were located were segregated. Well, I thought that was a pretty wise observation on his part. But then he said that the neighborhoods were segregated de facto uh, by private prejudice and uh, uh, discrimination by private actors like real estate agents or banks or people's choices of wanting to live with one another. And he gave no role to government policy in this. And I knew a little bit about this, and I thought this was a a crazy decision uh, to say that government policy had no role in segregating. housing in Louisville and Seattle. And this comes to another background piece that you might know uh, about. Uh, In the uh, 1960s, the mid-1960s, I had uh, a job as a research assistant at the Chicago Urban League. And uh, one of my tasks in that uh, job was to go through the uh, correspondence going back to the 1930s of the Chicago Housing Authority. It was a pending court case. Uh, you may be familiar with it, called Gautreaux, G-A-U-T-R-E-A-U-X, Gautreaux versus uh, the Chicago Housing Authority. And the uh, civil rights groups were claiming in this court suit that uh, Chicago segregation had been exacerbated by the placement of housing projects for black families only in black neighborhoods. And in an attempt to prove that, I was given the job under a discovery order of going through all the correspondence of the Chicago Housing Authority going back to the 1930s. I spent a hot summer, as I recall, in the basement of the Robert Taylor Homes where all of these correspondence boxes were kept. So I had some background and understanding that the... Uh, government policy had a role in segregation. I had no idea how extensive it was, but it made me think when I read the 2007 Supreme Court decision that there may be something that uh, Chief Justice Roberts was leaving out of the story. And so I began to look into it further, and that's how this all came about.
1: So, Richard, what probably when, more than you want to know. <laughs> no, no, it's exactly—I mean, it's exactly what I think um, helps us understand— Um, the beginning of your thought process. A lot of young people and not-so-young people are trying to figure out what they can do to change lives, especially of those who are disadvantaged. And to understand how all of this comes together really makes a big difference. I I wanted to do a little follow-up on that, though. Did you have a... What was the reaction of your colleagues, your peers, when you started doing this work and research? And you don't have to tell me about all of it, but is there, was there a universal reaction that Richard's off doing something esoteric and trying to prove a point that we don't think is correct? Or did they embrace this notion of de jure versus de facto?
2: Well, I was very, very fortunate. Um, of course, by the time I started doing this in 2007, I already had a long career. In which um, I had previously uh, gone off on uh, wilder uh, uh, searches that turned out to be very productive, for example, uh, I mentioned before the the book I wrote class and schools um, in which I described all of the social and economic conditions, not all of them, and many of the social and economic conditions that predict lower achievement for disadvantaged children and you may recall that the public policy that uh, I was fighting against the, uh, it became uh, encapsulated in the No Child Left Behind law, was embraced at that point by the civil rights community as well as by conservatives. The No Child Left Behind law was uh, something that was originally promoted by uh, President George Bush, but it was sponsored in the Senate by Ted Kennedy and uh, in the uh, House by George Miller, the two leading liberals in the House and the Senate, in the Senate and the House, respectively. So when I began writing about this, I was certainly met with a lot of skepticism, uh, on the part of, um, my colleagues who were mostly liberals and mostly believed, uh, that, uh, as the liberal dogma at that time said that, the that the discrimination on the part of teachers, low expectation on the part of teachers was the, uh, only reason that we had an achievement gap. So yes, I was met with a lot of skepticism at that time on that book, but I gradually um, persuaded many of my colleagues and even the, the the civil rights community gradually abandoned that view. And so I had, had something of a record of taking a contrarian position and having it proven right. So when I began this project, uh, my colleagues at the Economic Policy Institute were willing to give me a, a lot of time and rope uh, to explore it without worrying too much that I was going to do something silly. And I gradually, as I did more and more research along this area, um, uh, began to show them that uh, their view, which was the conventional liberal liberal view, was not correct and that we needed to pay attention to the social and economic conditions, including, as it turned out, the uh, segregation, that predicted low achievement on the part of disadvantaged children. Uh, the president of the Economic Policy Institute, Larry Michelle, was uh, very, very trusting of, of my instincts, even though he wasn't initially persuaded. But um, he was very trusting of my instincts. I'm very grateful to him. Without that kind of trust, I never could have been able to devote, You know, the 10 years uh, almost I spent uh, writing this book.
1: Well, I... Uh, in- Going through some of the comments that others have made, I came across a comment that William Julius Wilson said. and He says he, that Rothstein has presented what I consider to be the most forceful argument on how federal, state, and local governments gave rise to and reinforced neighborhood segregation. So I was familiar with um, Wilson's work, uh, The Truly Disadvantaged, And uh, to some extent, when he published that in 1987, um, it was largely ignored by policymakers. Uh, But I think uh, with this work, uh, really by starting with de facto versus de jure segregation, you've helped people to have kind of a basis for understanding what Wilson was getting at. And you've actually, according to him, done the best job to do that. Just for the purposes of clarifying, what is the difference between de facto and de jure segregation?
2: Well, de facto segregation is a term we all use. It's uh, almost universally accepted. Uh, I used it. Uh, It's the notion that the reason that African Americans in particular and whites in every metropolitan area in this country mostly live far apart from each other And de facto segregation is the uh, theory that the reason that that's the case, the reason that they live so far from each other, is because of non-governmental activity. It's segregation in fact, not in law. It's because of private discrimination on the part of real estate agents and banks or maybe uh, homeowners and landlords, bigoted homeowners and landlords refusing to sell or rent to African-Americans, or maybe because people like to live with each other of the same race, or maybe it's just because of income differences. It's a natural consequence of the fact that African-Americans on average have lower incomes than whites. All of these incidental accidental, um, non-government uh, decisions and actions is what's created segregation. And uh, the, the Supreme court has adopted the view that if it happened by accident, this can only unhappen by accident. Uh, in the Supreme Decision of 2007, when uh, Chief Justice John Roberts prohibited uh, the school districts of Louisville and Seattle from embarking on a token desegregation plan, its reasoning was that the segregation in Louisville and Seattle was de facto. And if you uh, have de facto segregation, according to the court, it's constitutionally impermissible to remedy it. The uh, jury segregation, on the other hand, would exist uh, if the separation of African Americans and whites in neighborhoods in every metropolitan area of this country was, to a significant extent, the product of government policy, explicit, racially explicit government policy, not the unintended consequence of benign policies, but racially explicit government policy. So, for example, uh, when when schools in the South were segregated uh, prior to 1954 and even after that when they didn't uh, obey the Brown decision, they were segregated de jure because there were laws requiring African-American and white children to be educated separately. Uh, That is de jure segregation, and the argument I make in my book is that racially explicit government policy was such a powerful force in creating residential segregation in this country not that there wasn't private prejudice of course there was not that there weren't bigoted individuals but without explicit government policy private bigotry would not have been able to uh, segregate the country because government policy was so powerful explicit Racial policy was so powerful. We don't have de facto segregation. De facto segregation is a myth. What we have is a system of racial boundaries in this country that are as unconstitutional, were created as unconstitutionally as the segregation of water fountains or buses or lunch counters or uh, interstate transportation, any of the things that the civil rights movement addressed in the 1960s and earlier. the residential boundaries in this country are as unconstitutional as that. It's a form of de jure segregation, and as such, uh, it requires a remedy. Civil rights violations require remedies. And so the purpose of my book is to um, persuade people that uh, they have an obligation as American citizens to redress segregation.
1: So do you have any solutions? I mean, what... Where do you go from there? Let's say we agree I'm a former mayor, uh, or a county commissioner or a governor. How do I go about doing that?
2: Well, that's my next <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well that's good to but, know.
2: Uh, yeah. I, 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 I have many I, I have many solutions. There's a small chapter in my book in which I allude to some of them in, in the color of law in which I allude to some of them. But fundamentally, just as we couldn't uh, redress uh, segregation in other areas of American life without an active civil rights movement, and I don't mean lawyers and think tanks and policy papers, but uh, an active civil rights movement of citizens, activists, young people, sometimes in the streets, some of them lost their lives without a new civil rights movement to demand these solutions. Um, they can't happen. Uh, I all, always get asked about this and I, I hesitate talking about the solutions Although, as I say, I'm writing about them now, but I hesitate uh, talking about them because th- we're not ready for, for that. We need a popular movement. We need a new civil rights movement to pick up where the last civil rights movement left off in redressing uh, residential segregation. And the, uh, if we have that civil rights movement, it can demand the um, adoption of policies that are well known to uh, redress segregation. I can name a few of them. I mean, I know you as a public official know them all, uh, but there was no political support for adopting them when, when you were in office. Um, but abolishing exclusionary zoning, uh, subsidizing African-Americans to purchase homes um, in communities From which they were denied access unconstitutionally uh, in the mid 20th century uh, prohibiting the concentration of uh, uh, subsidized housing uh, whether through the low-income housing tax credit or or the Section 8 program in existing uh, low-income segregated neighborhoods Um, the list can go on and on we know all these policies what they are Uh, what we don't have is the political will to to reverse them.
1: It's interesting you say that because I, um, I mean, it really is the absence of the political will. And much of, uh, Mm -hmm. as an elected official for eight years and an appointed official in government for another 11 years or so, I found myself having to justify that the policy was good for everyone, as opposed to having the opportunity to talk about the policies that actually segregated people and correcting them. So often we described our policies as kind of universally available and good for everyone. When we knew the target population was the group that Wilson defined as the truly disadvantaged. You define as those who've um, suffered from um, segregation and loss of opportunity as a result of of legal barriers. Uh, This conversation reminds me of my father because uh, around the dinner table in Philadelphia, he and my grandparents and mother would debate as to whether the best way... Uh, to accomplish the goals of the civil rights movement was through the law or through civil rights movement and uh, activism. And you're suggesting one needs the other and that that we need both.
2: Yes, we do need both, and one relies upon the other. Unless we have a new civil rights movement, all the policy development uh, that we can write about is not going to be real uh, the you know my friend Ted Shaw who's a former um, uh, president director counsel of the uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund once wrote a very sort of wistful uh, article uh, about Brown versus Board of Education and important though that uh, decision was what he said was it misled successive generations of uh, young people who concluded from Brown that the way to make social change was to become lawyers and uh, win, win lawsuits. And we gradually lost the ability to um, do the kinds of things that uh, the Congress of Racial Equality and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and uh, SCLC uh, were doing in the 1950s and 1960s to make uh, demands for desegregation real. And unless we have that kind of activism again, uh, we are not going to uh, be able to implement uh, the kinds of policies that lawyers and and policy advocates, uh, policy writers, think tanks uh, know we should do. So I'm I'm hopeful that we will have a a new civil rights movement. I'm not guaranteeing it, but um, uh, I wrote this book to try to make a small contribution to helping people understand its necessity.
1: Well, I, I don't think that there's any question. It's a contribution to that. And I assume you are saying, or maybe I should just ask the question, I mean, this this kind of information that is in The Color of Law or the, your next book or uh, class and schools um, can form the basis of, of the activist agenda. You're helping to define the activist agenda.
2: Would you agree? Well, yes, Yes, I am. Uh, as I said, the the color of law lays out the uh, the legal compulsion to redress segregation because it demonstrates that the residential segregation is a civil rights violation that needs to be remedied. But um, a book can't mobilize people. Uh, we need uh, organizers. We need organizations that are are doing on-the-ground organizing, holding meetings, uh, engaging people in direct action. Um, Most of the people I talk to these days are, of course, much younger than I am, and they don't have experience of the 1950s and 60s the way you and I do. And um, I tell them that my dream would be to, um, you know, there are many banks, as you know, that are meeting their uh, community reinvestment Act obligations by lending to gentrifiers in, in uh, historically low-income segregated communities rather than the people who live there, which was the attention of the CRA. I'd love to see uh, a civil rights group sitting in at those banks, uh, as we used to do, to get them to change their lending policies. So um, that's the kind of activity we need. A book can't do that. But what we need is organizers in the field, on the ground, civil rights organizers. Um, mobilizing people to take action to demand change.
1: So from, I mean, at least in the South, in Atlanta and in Georgia, we're beginning to see a level of activism around politics that is tied to political agenda uh, in our local politics, and our statewide politics like we haven't seen in recent years. We saw it in a governor's race last year. I suspect we'll see it in the... Uh, Coming uh, national elections, uh, people are talking about what we've gained as a result of the of the passage of federal and state legislation is not sufficient to close this wealth gap. Um, Can you talk? Well, two questions. I find myself as a former public official talking about not so much the melting pot of the '50s, not that conversation, but talking more about diversity that doesn't that includes African Americans but is not specifically targeting uh black Americans do you have do people talk to you about the fact that so much of your writing in certainly in the color of law uh is about African Americans and what has happened to them not what might be happening today to other minority groups or other groups that are perhaps don't have all of the opportunities of, of white Americans. Do, you, do people push back on that at all?
2: Oh, yes, I get a lot of pushback on that. And what I say is something along the following lines. I would never suggest that racial segregation, de jure segregation, as we've been talking about it, government-sponsored, Civil rights violations to create residential segregation is the only problem that this country faces. We face enormous inequality growth um, as a result of our economic policies, which are not racially based, although it's uh, the case that if we didn't have segregation, we might have a different politics in this country that might be more progressive in the economic policies they follow. But there are many other groups that suffer from the enormous inequality that we have. Uh, Certainly in the East Coast, in the Midwest, in the South, uh, the segregation that we have of African-Americans was racially explicit on the part of government, and those policies were not really concerned with other groups. Uh, In the West, in the Southwest, in places like California and Texas and Colorado, uh, there were state policies uh not so much federal policies but state policies that um enforced segregation but those policies were not nearly as powerful as the consistent federal state and local policies that were explicitly directed towards african americans as a result of the legacies of slavery and the implementation of jim crow uh, throughout the country so those need to be addressed but uh, The policies that we need to enact in order to redress segregation will in many cases benefit other groups as well, Uh, Hispanics, um, Native Americans. uh, But the primary target of uh, federal policies in particular and state and local policies in much of the country designed to enforce segregation, the target was African Americans. It was the legacy of slavery. It was the consequence of ongoing Jim Crow that continued throughout the 20th century, or at least through the first two-thirds of the 20th century, directed at African Americans. So I don't think... You know, I reject, as I say in the book, and as you probably know from reading it, I reject the term people of color because I think that obscures the unique uh, targeting of African-Americans for policies of segregation in this country. Uh, and we need to talk about these groups separately. They all suffer problems. We should address all their problems. But the, the, the targeting of African-Americans for denial of their civil rights to participate in this country's economy was unique.
1: Do you say that in the South too?
2: Have you speak do you speak it? Oh yes, you I you do. Is it, Oh yes, I say that everywhere in the country. I, you know, I'm not the uh, I'm not I'm not engaged in the popularity contest. I don't have to be. Well, I mean that's a, <laughs> This is what I uh,
1: That's a good feeling, yeah. isn't it? That you don't have to be. I um I I say that a, not with tongue in cheek, thanks. but um the mm-hmm. resistance um to having a conversation about race based on Legal exclusions, the law, um, are. I mean, it's not polite conversation in a lot of uh, important uh, places in the South. I mean, it's hard for politicians to talk about. It's hard for civic leaders to talk about. So my hope would be that those who become familiar with your work and related work would become more comfortable having an explicit conversation about how did we get to this point? And let's look at what government did. And some people would say continues to do um, around zoning and exclusionary zoning, that sort of thing. I mean, there are suburbs in the, in the in metropolitan Atlanta where uh, in order to build a residence, there was lots of discussion as to whether you need to have an acre of land <laughs> um, mm-hmm. basically to exclude people by class and race.
2: Right, well, you know um my audience is not politicians and civic leaders. I'm interested in in engaging um ordinary citizens because politicians uh, and civic leaders are not going to take the lead, never have, never will uh, they will uh have to respond to public pressure to organized. Um, activists, activism, people who are bringing this up from the ground. And so, um, you know, I try in my presentations and certainly in the book, uh, not to be preachy. Uh, I let the facts speak for themselves. And I think people can uh, draw the appropriate conclusions from those facts. They do in my experience. I think that's why, um, the reception to my book has been so stunning, so surprising to me, but, uh, it's because the facts speak for themselves and the people's reaction when they uh, read the book or when they hear me speak is something like, well, how come I never learned this? Why haven't I taught this in school? Um, I didn't know any of this. What can I do about it? And that's uh, uh, the re- reaction that I hope the facts will generate.
1: So some of the work that we do in, um, uh, in about 20 cities now, is about rebuilding community really from the neighborhood up. And our work at Purpose Built Communities is based on neighborhood redevelopment. Um and there's some challenges in that. How do you how do you bring new investment into a community without um uh, n- negatively impacting the people who already live there? Um our model is basically a rental, uh, multifamily housing model, which doesn't address um, building wealth. Uh, our model is great schools, which you advocated for through much of your career, and developing um, capacity-rich um, neighborhood organizations that represent uh, the neighborhood um, to put all of this together. and. What we would say a healthy neighborhood, uh, and when I think about your work, I mean I know you you help us to understand how these neighborhoods became segregated. Um, the question is how do we bust that up? And frankly, we had not thought a lot about uh, home ownership. Uh, some of the suggestions I've read and heard about from you in your lectures, and I just. I'd be curious as to what do you think about this. I consider us a, a pilot, by the way, even though we're twenty years old, I still consider ourselves a work in a work in progress. We learn as we go. So, what do we learn from
2: you? Well, let me say, I I, I think the work that uh, you do um, in purpose built communities is is terrific. I especially uh, like the focus on mixed-income housing because if we simply uh, improve uh, the condition of the housing in which low-income people live and concentrate them there, we're simply perpetuating segregation. So I'm, I especially appreciate that. Um, but as, as I've said and we've talked about, uh, the policies that we need to create healthy communities, uh, for example, to the the issue that you just talked about is how does making communities healthier, sometimes called gentrification, avoid displacing um, most existing uh, residents of those communities? And again, we know what the policies to do that are. Uh, Some of them are state policies, some of them are local policies. Uh, States vary in in, um, the extent to which they've preempted localities from enacting these policies. But, for example, to prevent gentrification from displacing an excessive number of existing residents, and of course it's going to always displace some, you can't have it both ways, you can't both um, have a, a... a more diverse community, and um, keep everybody who is in that community in a homogeneously um, uh, disadvantaged community there. But we can prevent the displacement of of many, many people, and the policies are well known. We know what they are. They're inclusionary zoning, so that any development that exists must have units for uh, low, moderate, and I would say even affluent uh, of families, mixed income. It's um. The uh, uh, prohibition or, or the limitation of condominium conversions in those communities, that's a policy that, that could be enacted. One thing that's very important to do is um, a property tax freeze. You know, Many homeowners in minority segregated neighborhoods who've owned their homes for many, many years are forced out and the neighborhood becomes healthier because they can no longer afford to pay their property taxes as the values of their homes go up. Uh, we could, uh, freeze property taxes for existing homeowners and, um, without starving schools and other public services, uh, the way we would do that is, uh, freezing property taxes for existing homeowners, but recouping, uh, the lost property taxes at point of sale. So if you have a, a homeowner who bought a home 20 years ago for $50,000 and, uh, we have a policy which, uh permitted them to pay taxes at the $50,000 rate as long as they lived there with modest increases for inflation. And then when they sell the home for a million dollars, the lost property taxes are returned to the treasury. So instead of making a $950,000 profit, they only make an $800,000 profit. Uh, That would be a policy that would would, uh, help to preserve the right of homeowners to remain in their communities. Uh, Rent control is another one. That we could enact. We know what that is. We know how it works. Uh, we know that it can preserve the right of people to remain um, uh, without the, uh, and it does not have to include vacancy decontrol. We can have a, a permanent rent control policy. So that would be another policy that uh, we can enact. So we know we have a whole slew of these policies that uh, we could enact. We're not going to enact them uh, without. Uh, Popular support, and that's why we need a new civil rights movement. Let me say something else about home ownership, if I may. Uh, one of the things I describe uh, in The Color of Law is how, in the years after World War II, uh, the federal government uh, created uh, suburbs in every metropolitan area in this country. The Federal Housing Administration created suburbs in every metropolitan area of this country of single family homes for whites only. Uh, probably the iconic one is Levittown, uh, east of New York City, but uh, you're familiar with them. Larry. They exist in the suburbs around uh, Atlanta. Uh, uh, another one that everybody's familiar with, although they don't know about it, they don't know they're familiar with, with it, is it, uh, uh, comes from a song that uh, uh, Malvina Reynolds wrote about little boxes on a hillside made of ticky-tack, and they all look the same. That was a, a suburb as, as large as Levittown on the West Coast. The Federal Housing Administration financed those suburbs on condition that the uh, developers not sell a home to an African American. They even required the developers, like Levitt or like the developer of those uh, those ticky-tacky houses, a man named Henry Dolger, required those developers to put a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale to African Americans. Well, that was a civil rights violation, as blatant a civil rights violation as you can imagine. It violated the Fifth Amendment to our Constitution for the FHA to do that. Those homes at the time, in the mid-20th century, sold for about $100,000 in today's money. Uh, about $10,000 then, but about $100,000 in today's money. Um, those suburban homes now sell for $300,000, $500,000. They're now unaffordable to working class families of either race. Uh, unless they have down payments from their parents. And how do the white families get down payments from their parents? Well, the whites who were federalized, uh, subsidized, uh, to purchase those homes by the Federal Housing Administration uh, gained equity as the homes gained in value from $100,000 to $500,000. They used that $400,000 in in gain to send their children to college. They used it to take care of medical or Unemployment emergencies, uh, they used it to subsidize their own retirements, and they used it to bequeath wealth to their own children. African Americans who were prohibited by federal policy, by racially explicit federal policy, it was written in the Federal Housing, policy, Housing Administration's Manual, prohibited from participating in this program, gained none of that wealth, gained none of that equity. The result is that today, on average, African-American incomes are 60% of white incomes on average. There's another whole story about that. Uh, but um, 60%, 60%. African-American wealth is less than 10% of white wealth. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 10% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that was practiced in the mid-20th century. So what do we do about it? Well. If we understood that this was an unconstitutional action by the federal government, if we understood that the exclusion of African-Americans from these suburbs is a civil rights violation and was a civil rights violation explicitly designed by the federal government, what we would be doing is buying homes in these suburbs now. The federal government would be buying up homes in these suburbs for $300,000, $500,000, whatever they cost and reselling them to African-Americans for $100,000 that would be a very narrowly targeted remedy for a very explicit constitutional violation. Now, are we going to do that today? No. No, that is not on the agenda. It is so far out of the realm of possibility it's even silly to talk about it. But could the civil rights movement put that on the agenda? I think it could. And uh, that's the kind of remedy that we should be talking about.
1: I, I spend a fair amount of my time as a former official, thinking about what else I should have done um, in my public life. So that's one of the reasons I spend as much time on um, education and also uh, purpose-built communities. But I think part of the challenge that I, when I really analyze why didn't I do more, um, there was a sense of many of, the people who supported me not necessarily just everyday folks but many of the supporters that i had who were giving me advice that i spent a great deal of time trying to be to accommodate all of the interests as opposed to focusing on the interests more narrowly as you are forcing me to do in my post electoral period so i i mean i I mean, it makes me think about how else we could do things um, at the local level. And I agree with you having at least some semblance of uh, civil rights movement around these issues is going to be needed. I don't think we need a whole lot of folks. We just need determined and consistent group who's beating this drum.
2: Well, yeah, I I don't think you should be self-critical about the whether you should have done more. It is the nature of a mayor or any other public official to accommodate all the interests. That's what they have to do. The problem is, and it was not something that was uh, your responsibility, the problem is that one of those interests wasn't being represented because it wasn't organized. And that's uh, the interests of uh, civil rights advocates who were determined to redress segregation. And we need to organize that new civil rights movement so that uh, future mayors will have that interest they have to accommodate. You know, When we um, dealt with civil rights in the 50s and 60s, whether in schools or in buses or in lunch counters or in public transportation or interstate transportation or public accommodations, it wasn't because uh, uh, public officials were uh, doing something better than public officials are doing today. It's because there was an act of... Civil rights movement that those public officials had to take account of, and uh, if there's no active civil rights movement, um, public officials are not going to be able to, much as they want to, take account of it. So taking account of existing interests is something that's inherent in, in, in public life. Uh, I don't think, as I say, you should be critical of the fact that you couldn't do more. I'm sure you did as much I think I'm not. I'm sure I know that you did as much as you could, given what those interests were. But uh, what we need to do now is organize an activist base that's going to demand uh, that the definition of what the interests that need to be accommodated is expanded. And unfortunately, you know, most of the people today who are well-meaning, uh, who uh, believe in, in uh, the redress of segregation, are off getting law degrees and um, uh, PhDs And still under the illusion, the post-1960s illusion, that social change can come about without a political base, that it can come about simply by having good ideas or good legal theories. And we need to disabuse ourselves of that notion before we can move forward.
1: Well, on that note, thank you very much. Are there other things you'd like to share with us?
2: Well... I do think, I guess, that in, um, in the purpose-built activities that you are um, engaging in, I know you are um, consultants to many cities and, and advising them to do wonderful work, uh, but when you get engaged in these cities, I hope that you will also reach out to the whatever local activists are there, and uh, maybe you're doing this already, and mobilizing uh, support for the programs that you so wisely advocate Uh, that is the missing ingredient we've talked about that for the last uh, hour Uh, that's the missing ingredient today and that's the one we need
1: well uh, thank you Uh,
2: thank you very much
1: thank you for that advice Um, I still feel that I could do more (laughs) which is why I still work on it I'm I'm probably like you Uh, you do Uh, do what you can at the moment and you just keep pushing forward but
2: uh, absolutely yeah
1: you you are a hero among all of us who are um uh, uh, doing community development especially place-based work and you and your work gives us both facts and history but it also gives us inspiration.
2: Well um thank you Shirley but um you are a heroine as well and we're all trying to crack this together and um we're in a terribly dangerous time now. And um, yeah, you know, we have uh, white supremacy that was probably always there, but hidden that's been uh, empowered. But we also do have um, a new awakening about uh, uh, the history of the legacies of slavery and of Jim Crow and of, uh, the segregation that's also growing. And uh, I'm actually quite hopeful that uh, the latter can uh, overcome the former. Uh, we have, uh, you know, it's not just my book. I've been stunned by the reception to my book, just stunned. It, it was not something I expected, uh, had any reason to even hope for. But um, it's not just my book. It's, it's uh, you know, Black Lives Matter. It's um, Michelle Alexander's book. It's uh, Brian Stevenson's book. It's, um, well, I... Uh, you know this uh, better than I do. White elected Southern politicians going around and removing statues that uh, commemorate the defenders of slavery. Uh, it's, um, it's the New York Times devoting a full uh, magazine uh, to uh, the legacies of slavery. Uh, so um, I'm hopeful. I'm
1: hopeful as well. I mean, the level of activism and and... Oh engagement in the conversation is broader than I've seen in in my 40 years in Atlanta
2: yeah it is I mean it is Um, and it's
1: also more diverse it's it's not just young people it's young people it's old people it's somebody on a plane it's in the grocery store I mean it's kind of everywhere so
2: yeah so yeah
1: you're seeing it I know
2: I I find it everywhere and I don't think we should be discouraged I think um I think we're uh, we're at the beginnings of a movement that could grow.
0: That was Shirley Franklin and Richard Rostein. The facts speak for themselves. The history is available for us to learn from. And if we want to be effective in our work, revitalizing neighborhoods, we have to recognize the history of racially discriminatory policies in our country. We can see in our neighborhoods the legacy of slavery and income and wealth inequality and housing quality and power disparities and health outcomes. While the facts speak for themselves, overcoming them, changing that reality, pulling back the toxic effects of racism and discrimination in our communities, that is much more difficult. We at Purpose Built don't claim to have all of the answers. Richard Rothstein said, We know the policies to begin addressing the history of segregation in our communities, but we lack the political will in the halls of government to pass them. We believe power lies in community. Social change must come from the ground up. It always has in our country. And focusing on the whole neighborhood helps lay the foundation for that social change. A group of dedicated leaders working together in a neighborhood towards a holistic revitalization of housing, education, and wellness together can create communities where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. And that example, multiplied by neighborhoods and cities across the country, can turn the tide on what's possible and necessary to do to address the inherited history of racism in America. Find helpful resources on racial equity and holistic community development at purposebuiltcommunities.org and connect with others around the country working towards racial equity by following Purpose Built Communities on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'd like to thank Richard Rothstein for his research and writing on racial housing segregation and steadfast calls for addressing America's history of racism and discrimination. In the next season of This Is Community, We'll explore how we know if we're moving the needle on intergenerational poverty. In communities where poverty has been concentrated, the problem is daunting and complicated, multifaceted and rooted in history, and there's no silver bullet solution.
1: Uh, we live in a great country with great assets, uh, but too many people don't share those. And it's, it's just time for all of us to recognize that these disparities and inequities um, are built into the system and need to be attended to.
0: Listen to This Is Community wherever podcasts are available or on purposebuiltcommunities.org slash podcast, where you'll find more information on the purpose-built model and engaging sessions from our annual conferences. And hit subscribe to make sure you get Season 3 when it launches. This podcast is created in partnership with HL Strategy, Our executive producers are Eitan Davidson, Howard Lawley, and Sherry Crawley. Our producer and editor is Brady Hummel. Mixing and mastering is by Matt Honkinen, and our music is from Pitchwire. If you like this series, be sure to subscribe and share it. I'm Alexandra Wiggins for Purpose Built Communities, and this is Community.